think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 96 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 97th episode, and I believe what is intended to be... Our very first... A, a short episode. Mini episode. We, we will see about that, because I, I would say about half the time we sit down and we say... We'll just do a short one, and then we end up just doing 45 minutes to an hour of I, podcast. I so. don't know that we've ever done a short episode before. But no, we have tried to. This is to. going to be the first. We have tried to many times, so let's see how it goes. So long as we don't take the first 10 minutes talking about the mini episode, we'll be, we'll be fine, I think. Indeed. So, obviously, the news today, uh, we're recording this Monday evening, the 24th of August, is that early in the, the wee hours of the morning... The very wee hours of the morning. Uh, it was determined uh, via a vote of the Conservative Party membership that Aaron O'Toole, a one noted listener of the Boys and Short Pants <laughs> podcast, uh, will be the next, and is now, is, yeah, it's the not, it's leader... Not some prime minister to no, be whatever. He's not designate. He just is. He is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, so there we go. Here we Lynch. are. After upsetting many people's very, very seemingly safe bets, I think. Though I think those, the odds were artificially long, I would say. So, yeah, there's a few areas to tread. Um, let's start with the obvious, um, the loss of Peter McKay. Yes. Um, because I think that's one of the most compelling narratives to come out of this. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's worth saying that I think pretty well everyone thought he was going to win. I think uh, us not included. I think in our, our heart of hearts, we just think he's too much of a loser to actually pull it off. And in fact, we were vindicated for that that prejudice. So I can't claim entire credit for that because when people asked me in the last week, I was giving odds of like 60% Peter, 40% Aaron. Yeah. Um, after having banked on Aaron most of the campaign. And it can, being honest with you here as well is this morning... I woke up, uh, and my, my partner, having beat me to the punch on, on waking up, as she often does, asked me, who do you think won? And I sat there, and I searched my feelings, and I was like, <laughs> in my gut, I think it's O'Toole. But what I said was, because I, I, here's what we over, we, I think we both over-intellectualized it, and we were just like, it's McKay, because that's a smart money. But it turns out it was, in fact, the fool's money. The fool's gold, if you will. <laughs> So, yeah, Peter lost, and I think... Convincingly. Very convincingly. And the argument um, for why Aaron won is, and it was compelling, or why Aaron would win, it was compelling beforehand. When you looked at the digital stuff, Peter was doing awfully. Um, it was like four to one or eight to one for dollar spent relative to engagement. Um, for the Peter McK- uh, sorry the uh, Aaron O'Toole campaign leading the Peter McKay campaign on Facebook, which is like Facebook I, is where I, your I aunt think, is. I don't think can be overstated. Yeah, in you know in a, in a usual year, social media is very important. Um, in a COVID campaign, social media is virtually it's everything. the game. Yeah, it's 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 it. Um, social media, emails, and phone calls is basically it. Um, so there was a lot of evidence that um, uh, Aaron O'Toole was doing very well. Aaron O'Toole got uh, very notable endorsements, Jason Kenney being sort of the utmost among them. Yes. Um, his whole positioning was around sort of carrying on the Harper brand, true blue conservatism. It's kind of amusing because in a sense it is what Air- it was what Andrew Shear ran on the last time, which is uh, Stephen Harper with a smile. Yes. 
Except that I would say to O'Toole's credit, his smile looks less pained and fake. <laughs> so, the, the biggest distinction I would draw between the 2017 campaign and the, I guess, 2020 campaign. In 2017, uh, O'Toole ran a bit more of a moderate, um, sort of center-right center uh, campaign. This time he sort of doubled down. Um, which a lot of people found to be somewhat of a, a jarring contrast with who they'd known Aaron O'Toole to be over the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's sort of the infamous um, Mitt Romney strategist, like, will he etch a sketch or not? And the speech was very different than even sheer speech the same night. And right? you, the speech that he gave after it was announced that he won. Yes, where he made an appeal to union members and all sorts of various constituencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and it, I think it was widely heralded as the right type of speech. I mean, over the past, uh, what would it be? How, how many years was Sheeran? 2017 to three years. Three years. Um, there was a lot of lip service paid to broadening the base, uh, to opening the tent, etc. Um, but it was never really done in any notable way. And that carried through all the way to, you know, Shear's resignation or exiting speech, where it was, again, uh, more red meat for the base rather than anything oh my, yeah, I mean, conceivable to broaden, broaden the base. I would actually say, too, I, I remember a couple months ago, I was listening to a Shear speech in the House of Commons about something or another, and it was really, like, the same kind of thing where he was the specter of Soviet communism <laughs> and all this. But it's, it, it truly is exceptional for its... Um, sort of lack of contemporary relevance yes. really in the sense that it's like i don't think anyone really cares about the specter of soviet communism anymore like it's it's not like people our age who you know i'm i'm 28 you're 30 like you know we have no living memory the, the soviet who knows? yeah we have no living memory of the soviet union so i just i don't really see that as a forward-going vote winner for conservatives no like not, um, not at all so, but it, yeah, I mean, and I would say also that, you know, when I was listening to that speech a couple months ago, I was thinking, this is the most, like, forthrightly ideological speech I've heard in some time from a party leader, right? Like, you won't really get Justin Trudeau uh, talking about, you know... The, the, the liberology. Well, the liberology, <laughs> sure. But, like, you, you don't really hear him talking about that, like big v values kind of thing and like big i ideology kind of thing big it's just v like <laughs> yes uh but it's just you it's not part of their vocabulary really to talk about liberalism as a capital Correct. l phenomenon it's just like this is you know it's just the world they live in and not like and a thing they've chosen to profess yes and i mean there there's certainly a split between sort of politicians in terms of those who are pragmatic and will try and frame things through uh, the issues that are relevant to voters' lives, mm -hmm. which are not fundamentally rooted in uh, ideology, or, or they don't grasp them through ideology for the most part. Yes. Um, and the pra pra pragmatic politicians, which is where sort of Justin Trudeau lands in terms of how he communicates, which is, you know, talking about bridges instead of the concept of infrastructure sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, which is something that conservatives can be very good at, but talking about the specter of socialism is not that, because when people can't pay their bills and they're facing a pandemic and 
you know, all of the issues that are facing modern Canadian society, none of them are the specter of socialism, really. Well, I guess people opinions will differ on this <laughs> <laughs> um, within within your party. But, but to a large extent, that went to who Andrew Scheer was as a person, um, which was sort of a bookish... Uh, a nerd, if you will. Yeah, I, I don't want to say it, but sort of a bookish... Uh, procedural wonk. This this sounds like a nerd uh, to me. <laughs> um, someone who perhaps would be more comfortable DMing a D and D game than. Uh, and, and I and I call him a nerd as the guy who who DMs than, our D and D game. Than speaking to people <laughs> at the doorstep. Um, I, you can do both. I will say from personal experience, it's uh, they are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> but to take it back, this this was the problem, and I I think the the sheer leadership um or yeah the the sheer period of leadership the three years got rooted in ideal in ideology so much they never they never broke out of it they never brought in the base they did the same thing they were always doing and they never grew into anything more um which is an area where i think uh, aaron o'toole has a lot of promise so just to to do a moment of uh, confession but uh sort of Perspective checking, I suppose. Well, perspective checking or just to uh, declare my own vote in this race. Um, so in 2017, who did I vote for? You voted for Deepak Oprah. <laughs> I remember. Who did I All vote right, for? All right, rest in peace. A good man. Who, who did I vote for on uh, my second place ballot? You voted for Aaron O'Toole on your second ballot. I voted for Aaron O'Toole. Yes. Um, I've always found him to be a considered, um, well-intentioned, um, smart politician and you, you say this despite knowing that he's probably not listening <laughs> <laughs> yes i mean i mean he listened to my take on him the first time around so it's like the second time around it's just gratuitous um and so i voted for him again i i didn't vote for peter mckay um i thought peter mckay um exposed all of his weaknesses during this leadership run yes um, he hired Maxime Bernier's folks to lose him the race. Again? And in fact, it's, it's funny how much this was a repeat of the last race in that way, where you had a, a, a flashier, kind of less solid front runner who everyone thought was going to win, only at the last minute to be upstaged by a more stolid, closer-to-the-base kind of guy yes. who pulled it off at the end of the at the end of the race. Peter McKay's campaign strategy was never really clear to me. It, it started out as, uh, that we're going to ditch the stinking albatross. We're going to get as rid of the SoCons. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly it became, I need, <laughs> I love you too. Yeah. For, forget I said those things. I am now the truer blue. And he like doubled down and started calling like Aaron O'Toole's environmental policies. Like, weak and liberal and stuff like that sure which is if, if you're going to be peter mckay you know one maybe don't hire the maxine bernier people to run a maxine bernier style campaign for you well especially because i think peter mckay's appeal was really like maritime good old boy but when you've got the sort of like um dubstep lee atwater doing the, the fidget spinner online campaign it it didn't really work no, and it led to him, conf- uh, you know, actively, uh, not condoning, actively, 
retracting statements every other week. <laughs> it did. It, did. it was like a ping like, pong match between. Oh, it was absolutely painful to watch. It was certainly a case of he went in the absolute favorite, prepared to run his campaign off a cliff in the first few weeks. Um, eventually got it back on track, only to derail it once more. And it sort of just ended with everyone sort of saying, ugh, is that what we want? Yeah. And Peter came with a lot more baggage than Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole only became a cabinet minister um, late in the Harper government, yeah, actually, he was in, in the last year. In and January. he was the veterans minister taking over for the very unpopular Julian Fantino. So, and seemed to have cultivated much better relationships with his stakeholders than so, Santino did. In terms of political baggage, Aaron O'Toole is uh, squeaky clean, um, where Peter McKay has all sorts of stories of, you know, the helicopters, et cetera, et cetera. Among many others, yeah. Um, and, as well as a track record um, in cabinet that can be scrutinized in a much more uh, ungraceful light. Yes. Plus, I mean, he was leader of PCs, etc. You know, sort of the, sold the party Orchard, down the river. The, yeah. yeah, David Orchard's website is still online. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to check that out, um, he's not bitter. He's not bitter at all. No. Um, so that's that's sort of the McCain dynamic, and ultimately, McKay. Or so, <laughs> sorry, not McCain. <laughs> Jesus, man. Uh, uh, I think when you look at the like let's zoom in a little bit at the, the the results themselves i think it's you know i think not to put too fine a point on it right the the central strategy of this race as you sort of alluded to with mckay's strategy was like who can get the second preferences or third preferences of the two social conservative candidate supporters uh, because I think, you know, you had, to, and to zoom out a bit on the race here, you had two broadly, you know, candidates who were perceived to have a, a, a reasonable chance of victory, which is to say Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay, and you had two in Derek Sloan and Leslin Lewis who were not. Sloan, and we've discussed the race a little bit before, but Sloan is a first-time MP who is running as the, the 4chan candidate, um, and you had Leslin Lewis running as a sort of soft SOCON um as an immigration lawyer from downtown Toronto, who is a person of color, and it was, is a, you know, an interesting dynamic you don't often see in conservative campaigns. So let, let's talk about Leslie Lewis. Sure, because I, I think... For just a moment. Yeah, and I, I think just to put it in context, like, she had a very good night. She had... Considering she had, that she was a someone who had no track record in elected conservative politics. I really don't think it can be overstated how insanely well she did. Uh, she won the Heartland heartily. Like, she very, very comfortably. to the race as an absolute unknown. Absolute unknown. I had never heard of her. Um, she had no political history, really. Um, and she managed to raise money where much more established uh, members of parliament, organizers, etc. were not able to raise the money. To oh, she got a lines. good campaign team. She put together a phenomenal campaign team led by uh, Stephen Outhouse. Um, and was able to draw, I mean, depending on which value you look at, about 20% of the vote in the, I think that was in the third round, uh, second round, rather, um, which is just, to put it in context, compare that against the Peter McKay number. Peter McKay got 13% more of the vote than she did. So she got 20%. Peter McKay, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, got around 33%. She has been in politics for four months. Yeah. Um, Peter McKay was born into politics. Yeah. 
um, and has been ostensibly planning to run for leader for the last 100 years. <laughs> um, and he, he ran into the ground. Had she had better French, and had she been able to... A little to, more of a network. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, this was her first run. If this had been her second run, or if she'd had anything else uh, going for her French... Uh, better name recognition, any of these things. She very easily could have, I think, usurped. And it's worth saying that she, like, it was a very, by the time the first ballot was done and you were looking at the second ballot results, she was leading in, like, large parts of the country, including the sort of conservative heartland of, of Alberta, Saskatchewan. Like, especially Saskatchewan. Like, I don't know what it is in Saskatchewan, but she completely just blew the doors off there. Yeah, she, she was leading in... Um... Uh, popular, like, popular vote, yeah. I believe, in the second round. Like, Cypress Hills Grasslands, which is the most conservative riding in the country, she, like, just won by a fair amount. Like, it was... for Once again, for somewhat... For an immigration lawyer from downtown Toronto to just completely blow the doors off in rural Saskatchewan, not something you see every day, so... All of, all of this does raise the question of what does she do now? Uh, I mean, she's entered the federal political conservative scene and made a huge splash. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that they're going to want her for some by-election or another at some point. Either a by-election or a role in OLO. Yeah. Um, as an advisor on, you know, perhaps X, both X prominent issue something. Yeah. Um, because there are not winnable by-elections coming up, it doesn't make sense to throw her at all. No, no, no. I think for, sorry, at Toronto Center or something like that. York Center is the one. Yeah, York Center yeah. and Toronto Center, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, neither of those. I mean, the York Center one is one that conservatives have won before, but I think in the neither. Current, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't risk it there today. right now. Yeah, for for sure. Um, so it's a great moment for her, a huge moment. What do you do with her now? Becomes a question, or what? What does she choose to do? Yeah, I think more more yeah. really. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that entire conversation is premised with the she is interested in getting into federal politics and something. I think that's probably fair to say, um, given that she just ran for leader what? of the federal party. But well, we'll see. I so mean, you're not leader. Do you I, want I mean, to Peter McKay. Peter McKay. I would say it would surprise me if he ends up running. So Peter McKay, despite his promise, unequivocally yes. that he was going to run for MP even if he did not win. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I wouldn't bet money on that. No. Um, which is, you know, one of the reasons why Peter McKay deserved to lose. Yeah, no, and I, I, yeah. It's worth saying once again that in our guts, I think both of us were like, this guy's just too big a loser to actually do it. He's too I, I big think, a flake. Did I, did I mention that I voted for Aaron O'Toole? I, I, I did. I feel yes. like I got off track there, and I yes. wasn't sure if we just ended with the 2017 conversation. No, no, yeah, you did. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, Derek Sloan, I think, is, you know... Deserves no airtime here. Correct. <laughs> um, I think he got... A, a pepe frog, if you will. A reasonable share of the votes, um, more than I would have liked to have seen. Um, but... So it's just life. Good riddance. Indeed. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think it's really worth... So, to zoom back in on the dynamics of this race... Like we said, like Leslie Lewis, a, a previous political unknown, had a very, very, very strong showing based on being a, a not crazy and not deliberately off-putting SOCON you know, of a sort of milder, uh, friendlier kind of persuasion. And her voters, uh, having now looked at a bit of the breakdowns of the writing-by-writing stuff, really did go pretty overwhelmingly for O'Toole as their second or third choice, depending on if they were yes. coming from Sloan. Though it's worth saying that, like, 
a very non-negligible uh, chunk of the conservative leadership electorate dropped off after those first two for them. And that made up about um, 20,000 votes out of about 170,000 cast, yeah. which is, you know, it's it's not like the difference between night and day here, but it's also like not small. So I should note there were some organizations like uh, Campaign for Life Coalition. Yes. Um, that were sending texts encouraging... Not people not to rank the later candidates. Yet. Yeah, which is incredibly bad strategy. Incredibly bad strategy. That's how you build leverage, my friend. Um, uh, just don't do it. Let's just remove ourselves from the competition when we don't win. Like it just absolutely makes no sense, and I, I think it speaks to the strategic minds behind that campaign, the brilliance behind them. I mean, it makes some sense in a general election where sure, you're, you're withholding, hold, of, yeah, yes. your withholding of your vote means that in a there's a general ballot, loss. No yes, in a ranked ballot in an internal party election, there's not much sense especially there. Especially when candidates are actively trying to appeal to socially yes. conservative voters. Well, yeah. So all that to say, though, but between the 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 sort of you know, decisive shift. And it really is quite decisive because like, if you look at for like example, the, um, the Saskatchewan and Alberta writings, especially you see a very, very, very strong Leslie Lewis showing. And then you see a really overwhelming mass of her voters go over to Aaron O'Toole. And then it's actually pretty interesting. So to talk about the conservative system, yes, we should have opened really, with this. We should have opened with that as, as we often do. We're not particularly organized. Um, the conservative system is a points-based system where every writing in the country has 100 points, and you have to win a majority of the points. Uh, so if you're a, a Quebec writing and with the, 15 the points, members... the points are assigned proportionally to the yeah. number of votes you receive in that writing. Yeah, so if you're a 15-member Quebec writing and everyone gets, you know, however many votes, then you split those evenly, and that's as many points as if you had the same spread over 2,000 members in a, a Calgary writing, yes. for instance. So, so the, the weighting of points... I calculated at one point, I don't remember... In disparate ridings, in the most populous and the least populous um, by uh, well, let, membership. Yeah, it's less populous than it is like higher membership density. That, that's what I mean. Yeah. Populous by membership. Um, I think uh, a single vote was worth something like 20 times more in yeah. the, where they're worth multiple points in, say, a Quebec riding or a fraction of a point in some of the Alberta ridings. Yeah, and in fact, like I, I actually did some math about who had an efficient vote. Um, and Peter, or Peter... Aaron O'Toole had an average vote efficiency in that it didn't change at all, basically, over the course of the, the three rounds, where McKay's actually improved a little bit. Uh, Lewis, to her uh, unfortunateness, misfortune, uh, had a very inefficient vote. So for every point she got, it cost her about six 6.2 to 6 votes over the two rounds. Um, McKay, it cost him 4.7 votes to the point, and at the end he was about 4.4. O'Toole is 4.8, staying very, very steady. And Sloan, in his one round he was in, is about 5.6 votes to the point. But it's interesting because if you look at the breakdown for O'Toole, that steadiness kind of belies him winning both the least efficient vote pool in the prairies by the end and also some of the most efficient in some of the lowest membership ridings in Quebec and Quebec. elsewhere. It's worth discussing a little bit of the history of the voting system here, um, which is a holdover from the PC um, Alliance merger. PC reform? PC Alliance? Oh, there was alliance, yeah, it was Alliance, yeah. yeah. Um, 
where, you know, when Peter McKay was merging, this was basically one of the conditions he insisted on. And in this race, it was Peter McKay who stood to benefit the most from the voting system. Yeah. Coming from um, Atlantic Canada, an area with a, you know, a reasonable amount of seats, um, generally with lower membership than much of Western Canada, he really had a lot of potential to win a lot of very efficient seats. Yeah. Easily in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. And as we're saying, he did. <laughs> he, he did in some. Yeah. He, he didn't actually do all that well in Newfoundland and No, Labrador. Newfoundland is the one where he did less well, but he dominated. But to be fair, Newfoundland is six seats compared to uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI's uh, 26 or so. Sure. Um, so, I mean, he was 30. a beneficiary of the system he helped create. Um, until he wasn't. <laughs> until the ranked ballot didn't do anything. Because virtually no votes moved to Peter McKay. That's really the as, fundamental thing here, yeah. As uh, Leslin and... Yeah. Uh, sorry, as first Derek Sloan and then Leslin Lewis dropped off. Yeah. It's worth noting that this was exactly the strategy uh, that Aaron O'Toole pursued from day one yeah he had a clear like path to victory right it was like i'm gonna assuming that this part of the party which is the more socially conservative more rural part is not gonna love me at first but they're gonna see me as preferable to peter mckay and i'm gonna take their preferences and and win i never really understood peter mckay's path to victory he except like maybe instant members i guess that he was gonna sign up but like i don't it didn't really work out. No, evidently. because and, and I think this speaks to sort of the uh, the op not not the optimist, but the uh, the people longing for resurgence of the PC party. <laughs> yes, that that the PC party doesn't exist, which is perhaps the lesson Jean Charest learned during his his much uh, scouting or discussion or deliberation of whether or not he was going to join the race at the start. And a lot of people seem to think he would be, you know, sure thing a lock right alongside Peter McKay. Yeah, I mean, I thought Pierre Pauliev was going to win well, from the beginning. I, I, think, Heidi we, run. I think we both did. Yes. And that was based on the, the fundamental premise that the Harper side of the party is much more powerful these days than the Peter McKay side of the party. Yeah, and will probably remain and, so. And that was 100% yeah. the case. The Peter McKay side of the party... I, I'm willing to put my hand and give it time of death. Um, it is effectively dead. Yes. Um, well, and it, it depends what we're talking about, right? Because I think the the sort of like, you know, really, really, really soft conservative business liberal at this point. Like, let's be real here. I'm sure a lot of these guys in the abstract would prefer a conservative government, but they know where their bread is buttered, right? Like if you're a business liberal nowadays and like you have your reservations about the liberal government, you're still like, okay, but these guys are the government and I'm not hearing a lot from the conservatives these days. That makes me think that they're like ready for prime time. Um, and you know, that that's fair enough. Um, but all that to say that the sort of constituency that existed for a PC party is not really, um, around anymore and it's also worth saying that that constituency is super 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 overrepresented in media and that's why you hear so much like oh if only we had the pcs back from you know various columnists and it's like yeah like these guys are sort of comfortable center-right contrarians who you know don't want their taxes to go up too much blah 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 and like yeah that's the base but like 
you don't find too many of those people outside of where they currently exist. I mean, there's also an absence a of... A very threatened habitat. An absence of uh, Scott Gilmore's dinner parties. Lately. Yeah, yeah but, uh, we never got to go to one. That, that Tragically. Really, that really undercut the... You know the strength of the. If there had been, if there, if it hadn't been for the weather uh, two years ago, then Scott Gilmore (laughs) could have had more dinner parties, and maybe Peter McKay would be a winner now. Um, Yeah, I mean, you were you were talking about the the SoCon side of things before, and in terms of Aaron O'Toole's strategy, having multiple SoCon candidates in the race really benefited him. Oh, extremely. Because um, he could just sit there and collect the votes at the end of each round and like. Yeah, and the entire campaign, they're out there signing up members. Yeah. Where they disproportionately fell to him on the third round. Yeah. So, hells yeah, Leslie Lewis, go do your thing so long as you don't beat me on uh, the round of ballots where I'm eliminated. Yeah. And you're eliminated before me because then I get to collect the proceeds of all of your hard work. Yeah, the lion's share. Um, and that's what Peter McKay failed to anticipate, which... It seems crazy <laughs> it <does laughs> when you think crazy. about it. It's like, really, like, it just seems like... Aaron O'Toole at the beginning of this race was like, here's how I'm going to win. And that's exactly what he did. And it just seems that they had no real plan to like deal with the very, very obvious path to victory. Yeah, had Peter McKay from day one never said the stinking albatross thing, to try to position himself as much more conservative and somehow got the PCers who thought like, oh, this isn't real Peter McKay, and then just split the vote. Yes. Down, down the middle of Aaron O'Toole. Which, it's worth saying, is exactly what Aaron O'Toole did. Well, split, <laughs> had they both pursued the same yes. strategy, is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, Peter McKay would have had a little bit less credibility in doing that. Who really knows how, how that would play into things? Mm-hmm. But that was his path to victory. And what's, you know, what's irritating about this, or must be irritating for Peter now, is this is basically, this is the very basic strategy in conservative leadership politics for i mean we haven't had that many since harper but it is very if there was to be another leadership two years from now and then four years from now this is what it's going to it would be like. the same strategy folks. yes exactly 100 will there is not another organized yeah it's just substantial this, organized uh, the socons don't have the weight to win constituency yeah in the same way that there's the socons it's not the gun owners it's not any of the other small groups yeah that conservatives often look to, it's really the SoCon vote. Yeah, they have the 15 to 20% weight that is, you can't win with them, but you can take them on board and have them get you over the line. Yes. and Which is what Shear did, and it's what O'Toole did, and like it, it is the way it seems that you win conservative leadership races. Maxime Bernier, to an extent, ran an extraordinary campaign, and he tried, in, insofar as he tried to build a sort of new and distinct coalition. Yes. Um... The, the Maxine Bernier coalition and that got him 49.999% yes. of the way there yeah. <laughs> or 99 depending on how you did the math sure um, and then he has pulled some of that coalition apart at the strings pulling yes. them over into the the lizard guys the, the gold PPC. guys yeah um, so that coalition we can presume for now no longer exists which really just leaves the SoCon coalition and it, as the king making block yeah. yes and and so just the most basic of tactical error or strategic errors rather for Peter McKay to not just pursue it and to try and think he was above it all and to try and uh, yeah, create and his own PC well, coalition circa 1999. To some extent, I think what he was doing was foreseeing the inevitable 
liberal attacks on him in a general election, which would be Peter McKay is reliant on the votes of social conservatives and he will implement social conservative policy, right? Which is, you know, I think... Doesn't matter. Well, you say that, but that is what led to Andrew Scheer losing. Like, he, he won the popular vote and lost because he scared a lot of people in Ontario that he was going to do social conservative things. No, but this has been overcome before, and it can be overcome and it can be overcome again. This this was I mean, this is again perennially yeah. the card that liberals play every single time. No, and look, like, having been the on the recipient of that card as the oh well, do you really want to vote third party and have the conservatives get in? Like I get it. And like when this worked it was Harper getting in, right? About yes. it but let's keep in mind here the liberals made themselves as unattractive as possible in the run-up to that uh, with the sponsorship scandal, et cetera. And like, I'm not, I'm not dumb. I, I can see the parallel here with the liberals making themselves as unpopular as possible through a variety of scandals, et cetera. Uh, and like, do I, I, I genuinely do think Aaron O'Toole can win a general election to a degree that I did not really think was fundamentally possible with Sheer. So let, let's address this. Liberals' worst nightmares of Peter McKay and leadership. A lot of pundits have been saying this. Yeah, a, a it's lot not of credible of to me at all. Contrarian pundits have been saying You want the like, dumbest guys possible in the leader's chair opposite. All the liberal strategists have been telling me that Peter McKay is their worst nightmare. And this makes no sense. He's a dummy. Like, he, he's a. He, like, very clearly, he's not that talented a politician. He makes strategic misstep after strategic misstep, puts his foot in his mouth all the time, doesn't understand what it takes to put a winning coalition together according to rules that are set out in advance, which is much more courtesy than you get in a general election, might I tell you. Uh, it, like Clearly, he was not equipped to do this, and like I think he would have been a joke and pushover as a federal leader. Paired with a record that's much easier to scrutinize and a substantial amount of political uh, and scandal baggage and misspending of public funds yeah. and what have Well, in you. fact, like what you could say is that Peter McKay sounds an awful lot like a liberal, <laughs> like which maybe for them, if they, they they sort of fear what's closest, I guess. By, but by like he's not fire. he's not very disciplined and like has made tons of mistakes where. I think O'Toole comes off as a, you know, in the sense where you have a, a Stephen Harper, then you have a Stephen Harper with a smile, and I think, you know, I would say Aaron O'Toole is a Stephen Harper with a convincing smile. <laughs> it's uh, he he's clearly much more talented a politician than than certainly Sheer. Um, I, I guess time will tell. Harper obviously was an extremely talented politician in a certain sense. I think O'Toole is much more personable. We'll see yes. whether he has the strategic depth that Harper did. He's much more personable and he's much more policy-oriented. Yes. And there's um, a lot of weirdness in there, and I think some of that is perhaps worth it for a discussion for another day of, like, the, the Kanzuk thing and some other things that I think appeal to precisely nobody uh, in the grand scheme of things. But there you go. We'll see. As fixations. The general public has yet to hear of Kanzuk, and they might well be converted Aaron, by its glories. Aaron, if, you, if you're listening, <laughs> I, I, I would say just drop the uck, dude. Just do cans. I think if, if the British wanted to leave, they had from about 1600 to about the 1960s. And the ones who are left, they want to stay. You know? Just don't. You know, Australia and New Zealand, very nice places. I think the British had their shot. You know, I don't think they deserve to be included in this. They went for Brexit. They want to be on their own. Just just respect that, for, man. For anyone unfamiliar with the Kanzuk, it's, it's worth saying. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, you're doing my job it, now. <laughs> yes, I used to do this a lot more. It's a, uh, a policy proposal to bring together Canada, Australia, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom into a closer policy defense economic they want to do the e they, they want to do the eu 
but with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, which is like, look, the UK already pitched a fit about other people telling them what to do. They do not deserve a do-over. Do not give them this chance. No British posters. Keep them out. I don't. I don't want them. Anyways, I think we're getting well over uh, mini episode length. Indeed. Yeah, so. we're, we're pretty much a normal episode length. So, is there any anything you want to close on in terms of closing thoughts on the leadership race as someone who this more directly affects? No. Uh, I will say I am genuinely happy with the result. Um, I think the story of Leslie Lewis is one that I overlooked all throughout the race. I kept hearing she's doing amazing things. I never really saw it. Um, but the vote tally speaks otherwise and Indeed. so uh the voter is never wrong well uh, <laughs> okay and if you settled down <laughs> um and then in terms of the result i think i i could be happier with the result um i think it'll be really interesting to see what aaron o'toole does going forward um how he positions himself what he what podcast he goes on what to... he sees as the <laughs> path to victory um, in the next election, and whether that election is this fall, no, no or indeed, you know, it, it could very well be in the spring or s- fall of next year. Yeah, 20, I mean, if if I were a conservative, I would be a lot more optimistic right now than I would be had Peter McKay won. I, w- I would say that. Yeah, I, I'm 100 more optimistic. I yeah, I would have been a lot poutier on this podcast. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Peter no one likes pouty Etienne. Okay, so that will do it for our, our mini episode, I guess. Uh, mini as mini as it is, I suppose. We're we're just a little under where we usually come in. Uh, but that that will do it. That's, uh, it. that's all. You can follow us at Short Pants Pod. Do you want to do a quick beer review of what we had here? Uh, I don't actually I, remember I, the I name of it exactly, but it was uh, it was from Bicycle uh, in in Ottawa, a, a lovely little local craft brewer, and it was a milkshake IPA with guava. Very good. I've been really meaning to brew a milkshake IPA for about three months. And we have, yeah, we've not done this yet. I, I have everything on my shelf, but I've yet to get around to it. Did you actually so. get the, like, oh, you got the lactose and everything? I've got all the ingredients. All right, we should do that soon. All right, well, that, that'll do it, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.